within it. The bird in a warbly cage was a red-winged blackbird. Where is it from? You could use a kinder pronoun. He, she, which is kinder, Wardress Kifa? Assume the share of masculine, Mister Lorca. My sexual proclivities have never run that way. Your sexual proclivities matter only if you regard the house as a brothel rather than a clinic. And the sharer as horse rather than therapists. Last night I heard two or three people clomping up the stair in their boots, that and a woman's raucous laughter. A client, Mister Loka, not a sharer. I didn't think she was a sharer, but it's hard to believe I'm in a clinic when that sort of noise intrudes. I've explained that it can't be helped. Okay, where's he from then? That therapist of mine. An interior star, but where he's from is of no consequence in your treatment. I matched him to your knees as I see them, and you'll soon go back to him. To spend another night squatting on the floor. You won't do that again, Mister Loka, and you needn't worry. Your reaction parallels that of many newcomers to the house. Revulsion, revulsion's therapeutic. I don't think you were as put off as you contend. Oh, why not? Because you talked to the Shara, you addressed him. Not once, but several times. Many clients fail to get that far during their first session. Talk to him. I considered this. Maybe before I found out who he was. Ah,、uh, before you found out what he was, in her heavy green jacket and swishy pantaloons, the tiny woman turned and left. For a time, I stared bemusedly after her. Three nights after my first session, the night of my conversation with Wardress Kifa, I re-entered the sheriff's chamber. Nothing had changed except that the dome's shutters stood ajar and moonlight frosted the mosaic tiles. The sheriff awaited me in the same recumbent posture, and the red-winged blackbird sat one of its perches rocking. Perversely, I decided not to talk to Sharer, but I did approach the sofa bed and lean over him. Hello, I thought, and almost sat. I straddled the Sharer and studied him in the stained moonlight. He looked just as my sense of touch had led me to conclude earlier, like a skull, oddly flattened and beveled, with the body of a man. But despite the chemical embers agleam beneath his bed, the sheriff's body lacked warmth. To know him more fully, I resumed tracing him with a finger. At every conceivable pressure point, a tiny scar existed, or the tip of an implanted in electrode, while miniature canals into which wires had been sunk veined his inner arms and legs. Beneath his sternum. A concave 
disc about eight centimeters across, containing neither instruments nor any other conspicuous features, had been set like a stainless steel brooch. It hummed under my finger as I drew my nail around the disc. What was it for? What did it mean? I rode toward the wall and stretched out beside Shara. Maybe he couldn't move. On my last visit, he'd moved his dimly phosphorescent head, but feebly. Maybe his immobility stemmed from mechanical dysfunction. My resolve not to speak fled me. I propped myself up on my elbow. Shara, Shara, can you move? The head turned toward me slightly, signaling, "What? Can you rise? Try get off the stage under your own power." A miracle. The Sharon latched the quilt to the floor and struggled to his feet. Moonlight glinted from the ringed units of his eyes, giving his bent, elongated body the look of a piece of Inhotlev era statuary. Primitive work from the extracom world of Galapagos. Very good. Now tell me what you're to share with me. We may not have as much in common as our wordiest things. The sharer extended both arms and opened his fists. In his palms, he held two items I'd not noticed during my tactile examination. I accepted these: a small metal disc. And a thin metal cylinder. The disc reminded me of the mirror-like ball in the chest. The cylinder resembled a penlight. Absently, I put my thumb over the head of the penlight. A ridged metal sheath followed the motion of my thumb, uncovering a point of ghostly red light stretching away into the cylinder forever. I pointed the instrument at the wall or bedding, the sharer. But I emitted no beam. When I turned the penlight on my wrist, the results were much the same. Not even a faint red shadow appeared along the edge of my arm. The penlight existed internally, a beam transmitted and retransmitted between its two poles. Pulling back the sheath on its head hadn't disabled its self-regenerating circuit. And I stared in wonder into the tunnel of redness. Shara, what's this thing for? The Shara took up from my other hand the disc I'd ignored. He laid it in a larger disc in his chest, where it apparently stuck, for I could no longer see it. That done, the Shara stood immobile, a statue again. One arm frozen across his body, a hand stilled at the margin at the sunken plate into which the smaller disc had vanished. He looked dead and self-commemorating. Lord, what have you done, Shara? Turned yourself off? Turned off. The Shara ignored me. I felt opiate weary. I could not stay on the dials with this puzzle piece being from another sun standing over me like a dark angel from my racial subconscious. I thought to manhandle him across the room, but lacked the will to touch his bone and metal body, and so dismissed the idea. 
nor would Burgess Kiefer help me, even if I tried to summon her. Is this what you want me to experience, Romain? The frustration of trying to devise my own therapy. I peered through one of the dome's unstained polygons in search of the constellation Auriga, but I realized I wouldn't know it even if it lay within my ken. You're certainly a pretty one, I said, pointing the penlight at the sheriff's chest. Then I drew back the sheath on his head. Bang! A beam of light sun between the instrument in my hand and the plate in the being's chest. The beam died at once. I'd registered only its brightness, not its color. But the disc kept glowing, residually. The sheriff lowered his arm and assumed a loser, more expectant posture. I turned the penlight over, pointed at him again, and waited for another cursing of light. The instrument still burned internally, but the alien's inset disc did not reignite. However, it still dimly glowed. I brandished the penlight. You've rejoined the living, haven't you? The sheriff canted his head. Forgive me, but if you can move again, how about over there? I pointed at the opposite wall. Please don't hover over me. The sheriff obeyed, but oddly, cruising backward as if on un- invisible coasters, his legs moving, albeit not enough to propel him quickly across the chamber. Once against the far wall, he adopted the motionless but expectant posture that he'd assumed after the penlight activation. He still had some control over his own movements, for his skeleton fingers flexed and his skull nodded eerily in the halo of moonlight pocketing him. But he had genuinely moved only at my voice command and my simultaneous gesturing with the penlight. And what did that mean? Maybe the sheriff had surrendered control of his body to the man-machine Dorian Lorca, keeping for himself just those movements that persuade the manipulated of their autonomy. It was an awesome prostitution. Even if Worges Kifa would have frowned to hear me call it that. But I rejoiced. It freed me from the demands of artificial eroticism, from any necessity to deduce what was expected of me. The sheriff would obey my least gesture, my briefest word. I just had to use the control he'd literally handed over. This nearly unlimited power was a therapy whose value Romai would understand. A harsh assessment, but penlight in hand. I too resembled a marionette. Insofar as I could, I came to grips with the physics of the sheriff's operation. First, the disc within a disc on his chest apparently broke the connections ordinarily allowing him to exercise the senile power that he still owned. And second, the penalized beam restored and amplified his power, but delivered it into the hands of whoever wielded the penlight. In Earth's probe shipyards, 
crews of animatronic workers programmed to fit and to weld had labored. A single supervisor could direct 15 to 20 receiver-equipped laborers with only a penlight and a microphone. Sure, I commanded. Go there. No, no, lift your feet. March. That's right. Good step. While Wardrobe Keefer's third rule rattled about in my mind challengingly, for the next several hours I toyed with the sharer. I set him to either calisthenics or dance, and he obeyed more gracefully than I would have predicted. Here, there, back again, minus only music for accompaniment. At intervals, I rested, but always the penlight drew me back. And I again played puppet master. Enough, Shara. The sky had a curdled quality, hinting at dawn. Catching sight of the cage overhead, I had an irresistible urge. I pointed my penlight at it and said, "Up, Shara, up, up, up." The Shara floated up from the floor toward the ceiling's vault, a beautiful aerial walk. Without benefit of hawsers, scaffolds, or wings, he levitated, hovering above the stove bed, over everything. In fact, he reached the, the cage, floating before it with his hands touching the scrolled ironwork on its door. I lowered my hands and watched. So tightly did I grip the cylinder, though, that my knuckles resembled the caps of four tiny bleached skulls. Time passed. And the sheriff posed in the lit air, awaiting some word. Morning entered the polygonal windows. Take the bird out, I said, moving my penlight. Take the bird out and kill it. This command seemed a foolproof, indirect way of striking back at Rumai, Dideritz, the Warges, and the third rule of the house. Against all reason. I wanted the red-winged blackbird dead, and I wanted the sheriff to kill it. Dong made clear the encroachment of age in his body, as well as the full horror of his fake death's head. He looked like he'd been lynched, and when his hands went up to the cage, instead of opening its door, he lifted the contraption off the hook, fastened it to its tether, and then lost his grip. Accidentally, I'm sure. The cage fell, landed on its side, bounced, bounced again. The sheriff stared down with his bulging, silver-ringed eyes, his hands still spread wide to accommodate what he had just dropped. Mister Lorca, Wardrobe Kiffa knocked heavily. Mister Lorca, what's going on? I arose from the stove bed, tossed my quilt aside, and straightened my robes. The wardrobe knocked again. The sheriff swayed in the half-light like a sword, an instrument of severance. The night had sped. Again, the purposeful knocking. Coming! I barked. In the dented cage, a flutter of crimson, a stillness. Another melancholy bit of flapping. I hurled my penlight, 
When I struck the wall, the sherry rocked for a moment without descending a centimeter. The knocking went on. You have the key, Wardress. Open the door. She did, and stood on threshold taking stock. Her eyes were bright but devoid of censure, and I swept past her, burning with shame and bravado. I slept that day, all that day, for the first time since leaving my own world, and I dreamed. I dreamt myself connected to a mechanism, pistoning away on the edge of the half-picard diggings, symphoning deadly ga- gases from the shafts, and recirculating them through the pump with which I shared a feedback circuit. Amid the turquoise sunsets, and the intermittent gusts of sand, this pistoning went on continuously. When I awoke, I lifted my hands. Intending to scar my face with my nails, but as I expected, the mirror showed me a perfect, unperturbed Dorian Loka. May I come in? I'm the client here, Wardress. So I suppose you may. She entered and, intuiting my mood, stood far from me. You slept, didn't you, and dreamt? I said nothing. You dreamt, didn't you? A nightmare, Wedges, but different from those I had on my rust. A start, and you survived it. Yes, good, all to the good. I went to the room's only window. A hexagonal pane of dark blue through which I could see nothing. Did you get him down? Yes, and restore the birdcage to its place. Her tiny feet paced the hardwood. The bird was unharmed. Wordes, what's all this about? Why have you paired me with this Shara? I turned around. What's the point? You're not estranged from your wife only, Mister Loka. You're. I know that. I've known that. I realize that. Give me some credit. You also know. She resumed. That you've, you're estranged from yourself, body and soul at variance. Yes, damn it. And the argument rages in my every pseudo organ and circuit. Please, Mister Loka, this interior argument is really a metaphor for an attitude you assumed after Diderot's performed his operations, and a metaphor can be taken apart and explained, like a machine, if you like. She paced more, some more. To take inventory, Mister Lorca, you have to cement that which is inventoried. You go outside in order to re-enter. She halted and fixed me with a humorless, lopsided smile. All of that is clear. Know thyself, Seth Diderots, 
and the ancient Greeks. Well, if anything, my knowledge has increased my uneasiness about not only me but others, and not only others but the very phenomena enabling us to spawn. I flashed on an image of crimson-gilled salmon firing upstream in a roiling barrage. All that I know hasn't cured anything, Gorgeous. No, so you came here to extend your knowledge and to join in relationships, demanding that you sanctify others as well as yourself. As with the sharia left hung in the air. Yes, distance is initially advisable, perhaps inevitable. You needn't feel guilty. In a night or two, you will return to him, and then we'll just have to see. Is this the only sharia I'm going to be working with? I don't know. It depends on your progress. But for Wurgis Kifa. The shara is the crimson dome, and the noisy midnight clients had never seen. I sometimes believed myself the only occupant of the house. The thought of my isolation, though not unwelcome, was an uncorrelated fantasy. In the rooms next to mine, going about the arcane business of their lives, they'd bartered away. Breast humanoid creatures hard to imagine. Hotter still, once lodged in a mind to purge from it. To what number and kind of beings had Wojciechowska intended her love? I had no choice but to ask. We heard an insistent stamping on the steps outside the house, and then muffled voices in the antechamber. Who comes? The Wojciechowskis waved me to silence and opened my door. A moment," she called, but her husky voice didn't carry well. And whoever had entered the house began ramping rudely on doors and clamping from room to room, all the while bellowing the wardress's name. "I'd better talk to them," she said apologetically. "But who is it?" Someone voice coded for entrance. Nothing to worry about. And she went into the corridor, wafting me a smell of spruce needles and a glimpse of solidly hewn rafters, before the door swung to. I got up and followed. Outside, the wardress stood face to face with two imposing persons who looked identical in spite of their being, one a man and the other a woman. Their faces had the same lantern-jawed mournfulness. Their eyes hooded under heavy brows. They wore pea jackets, ski leggings, and fur caps bearing the interpenetrating galaxy's insignia of galactic calm. I judged them in their late thirties, E standard, but they had the domineering air of high-ranking veterans in the bureaucratic establishment. I had once been an official of the same stamp. The man caught in mid-billow tried to laugh. Ah, ah, gorgeous, gorgeous! I didn't expect you this evening," she said. We got a leave for finishing the Celos blueprint ahead of schedule. 
the female explained. And so caught a late rail from Monitor Port. We hiked down in the dark. She lifted a hand lantern for our inspection. We took a leave, the man said. Even if we were here last week, we deserved it too. He told us that sailors dealt with reclaiming the remnants of Aboriginal populations and pulling them for something called integrative therapy. The Great Plains will soon be our bordello, Wardress. There, you see, you and the Ohas are in the same business. At least until they ask us to stage manage something more prosaic. He clapped his gloves together and looked at me. You are new. Whom do you visit? Pardon me, the wardress said wearily. Who do you want tonight? The man looked to his partner. Cleva? The mouthless one, Cleva said. Preferably drugged. Come with me, Ohas. The wedges led them to her own apartment, then into the house's mid-interior, where they disappeared. I could hear them climbing, though. Shortly after, the wedges returned to my room. Twins, I said. Clomates, Cleva and Clearach Oha, specialists in holosyncretic management. They computer plan strategic movements of indigenous and alien populations, so they know of the house and have authorization to visit. Do they always appear together? Go upstairs together. The wardress' silence clearly meant yes. A bit unorthodox, isn't it? She gave me an angry look, whose implications shut me up. Then said, "The Ohars are our only clients who visit together. Since they share a common upbringing, the same genetic material, and identical biochemistries, I should hardly surprise that their sexual preferences also coincide." In Manitou Port, I'm told, lives a third clomate who married. I've never seen her here, or in Warfront Summit. Even among clonal siblings, a degree of variety exists. Do these two come often? You heard them in a house a few days ago. They have frequent leaves then. Last time was an overnighter. They return to Manitou Port in the morning, Mister Loka. This time they will remain several days. For treatment, you're baiting me. She'd taken her graying scalp lock into her fingers. Now she held his fan of hair against her right cheek. In this posture, despite her preoccupation with Orhas, she looked at once old and innocent. Who is the mouthless one, Wurgis? Good night. I returned only to tell you good night, and she left. I hadn't permitted myself to talk with her for so long since our first afternoon in the house, nor had I stayed in her presence for so long since our claustrophobic rail ride from Monitor Port.
even the orhas, bandled to the gills as vulgar as bullfrogs, had not struck me as wholly insufferable. Wearing neither coat nor cap, I took a walk through the glens below the house, touching each wind-shaken tree as if to conjure a viable memory of Rumai's smile. Sex as weapon, I told the sharer lying on my stove bed amid a dozen quilts of scarlet and of scarlet. As prince consort to the governor of Mirost, I had access to no other weapon. Rumai used me as a emissary, sharer, a spy, a protocol officer, whatever state business required. I received visiting representatives of Galactic Com. Mediated disputes in a porti Renani Galential, and took biannual inspection tours of the Fetni and Farak district mines. I did a bit of everything, Shera. As I paced, the Shera studied me with a macabre but not unsettling penetration. The hollow of his chest was exposed, and when I passed him, an occasional metallic wink caught my eye. I told him the story of my involvement with a minor official in Puerto Rennes' Department of Immigration, a young woman whom I never called anything but Homey, her maternal surname. I had had others besides this woman, but Homey's story was the one I told, because alone among my ostensible lovers, I'd never taken her to bed, I'd never chosen to. Instead, to her intense bewilderment, I gave her my rings, wristlets, earpieces, brooches, necklaces, and die-cut cameos, all from the collection of Rumai Montith, governor of Merost. Anything distinctive enough for my wife to recognize at a glance. Then, at functions requiring Rumai's presence, I asked Humei to attend too. Sometimes I accompanied her. Sometimes I found. An escort among the single men assigned to me as aides, always ensured that Rumai should see Rumai, if not in a reception line, then in a sweep of the formal recessional. Afterward, I asked Rumai, who rarely had a clue into my game's purposes, to return whatever piece of jewelry she'd worn. She always did so. Then I put the jewelry back in my wife's sandalwood box before she could verify its theft. I suppose I wanted to make my dishonesty conspicuous. Finally, dismissing Humei for good, I presented her a camel that an artisan in the Furak district had crafted. Later, I learned that she'd flown this camel at an aid of mine about something else entirely. Several times she raised my name. At length, in two days' time, she received an arbitrary transfer to Yakme, the frontier administrative center of the Farakrit district, and I never saw her again. Later, Shara, when I dreamed of Humai, I saw her as a woman with mother of pearl flesh, ruby eyes. In my dreams, she became the jewelry with which I tried to incite my wife's sexual jealousy, blunting it even as I summoned it. 
the sheriff regarded me with hard but not unsympathetic eyes. Why? I asked. Why had I dreamed of Humai as a precious clockwork automaton, gilded, beset with gemstones, invulnerably enameled? And why had I so fiercely desired Rumai's jealousy? The sheriff's silence invited confession. After the half-picard incident, I went on pacing. After Diderot had befitted me with a full-body prosthesis, my nightmares often focused on a woman exiled to Yatme. Although in Port Iranani, I'd never touched Humai erotically. In my readable nightmares, I often descended into a catacomb or a dry quarry to force myself without success on the bejeweled automaton that she had become. Always, Humai awaited me underground and turned me back with coruscating laughter. And in my nightmares, I realized that I wanted Humai far less than I did residency in the subterranean places that she'd made hers. The click knights directing my descent always followed me back out, so that Humai remained many kilometers below, exulting in the dark. The sheriff stood and took a turn around the room. The quilt over his shoulders clenched loosely at his chest. He'd never moved so far of his own volition, and I sat down to watch. Did he understand me at all? I'd spoken to him as if he must, but perhaps all his reactions were projections of my ambiguous hopes. When he at last returned, he extended both hideously kenneled arms and opened his fists. In them, the disc and the penlight, an offering, a compassionate, selfless offering. For a moment, I stared at them in perplexity. What did the sheriff, Wajus Kifa, and the others ha- who had sent me here want? How could I purchase their forbearance on my freedom? By choosing power over impotency, by the manipulation. I hesitated. The sheriff placed the small disc in the larger one beneath his stenum. Then, as before, a thousand. Esoteric connections severed. He froze. In the hand extended toward me, the faintly glittering penlight threatened to slip from his insensible grasp. I took it, pulled back the sheath on its head, and gazed into its red-lit hollow. I released the sheath and pointed the light at the disk in his chest. If I pulled the sheath back again. He would turn into little more than an external prosthesis, as much at my disposal as my own alien hands. No, I said, not this time. And I flipped the penlight across the chamber, out of the way of temptation. With my nails, I pried the small disk out of its electromagnetic moorings above the sheriff's heart. He was restored to himself, as was I to myself, as was I. A day later, early in the afternoon, I ran into the Orhas in the house mid-interior. 
They approached me out of a lofty, sideways-canted door as I peered upward from the accessed corridor. Men and women side by side, mirror images ratcheting down a Mobius strip of stairs. On they came. The brand new client. Clairach Oha told his sister at the lowest step. We've seen you before. Briefly, I said, on the night you arrived from Manitou Port, on your for your leave. Such a memory, Clever Oha said. We also saw you the day you arrived. You and the warders were setting out from Wolfran Summit. Clairach and I sat beneath the sky lodge, watching. You wore no coat, Clairach said, to explain their interest. Both stared at me, nor did I wear a coat in the well of the house. Even though the temperature hovered only a few degrees above freezing, and our breaths ballooned before us like the ghosts of ghosts, my silence made them nervous and brazen. No coat, Cleva repeated, on a day cold enough to freeze your spit. Look at that one, Cleva said. Thinks he's a polar bear, and we laughed. Stoodling. Bile flooded my mouth. I wanted to escape the aura's warty humor. They were intelligent people; otherwise, no one would have cloned them. But face to face with their flawed skins and loud sexuality, I felt my reserves of tolerance overbalancing like a tower of blocks. We seem to be the only ones in the house this month, Cleva volunteered. Last month the wardress was gone, the sharers had a holiday, and we had to contend ourselves with incestuous burglary in Manitou Port. Cleva, the man protested, laughing. It's true, she turned to me. And that little she goat, Kifa, I mean, won't even tell us why the closed sign was out for so long. Yes. Clairach said, "An exasperating woman. You have to tread lightly on her patience. One day, I'd like to find out what makes her tick. She's a mesoesthetic, brother. I don't know. This house has many mansions, Cleva. Several of which she has refused to show us. Why?" He lifted one brow suggestively, as Cleva often did, and the Orha's expressions matched exactly. Cleva appealed to me. What do you think? Is our wardress at bed and bone with the shera, or does she lie alone under an untanned elk hide? I haven't really thought about it. Containing my anger, I tried to leave. Excuse me, or her clones. Wait, wait, wait! Cleva said meanly. You know our names, and that puts you up, Stadling. You can't live without revealing yours. Resentfully, I disclosed my name. From where? Cleva asked. 
Colony World GK11, otherwise known as Mirast. The Orhas exchanged a glance of enlightenment, after which Cleva raised her thin brows and spoke mockingly. Ah, the mystery soft. Out and back our watches went, and therefore closed her house. Welcome, Mr. Loka, welcome. We're going up to Wolfrun for an afterbout of toddies and pinot. Please come. The climb won't affect a studling like you. Look, Clearach, biceps unbundled and synosis still clear. I declined. Who have you been with? Clearach bent toward me. We've been with the native of an extracom world called Trope, the local name. Anyhow, there is not another such being inside a hundred light years. The face intrigues us, Cleva explained, saving me from replying. She reached out and ran a finger down my arm. Look, not even a goosebump, Clirach. You and I suffered the shims and triffs, but Mr. Loka stands unperturbed. Clirach started to ask his questions again. Irritated with Clearwell's non-sequiturs, but studying me closely, she had an insight and overrode him. Mr. Loka can't tell you about his share, Clearach. He's not a regular visitor to the house, and he doesn't want to violate the confidences of those who are. Dumbfounded, I said nothing. Clearwell guided her brother beyond me into the house's antechamber. Then the Ohar clones let themselves out and started the long climb to Wolfran Summit. What had happened? Clever Ohar had recognized me as a man-machine. From this recognition she'd drawn a logical but mistaken inference that, like the mouthless one from Chope, I was also a slave of the house. During my next tryst with my Shara, I spoke for an hour or more of Rumai's infuriating patience, her dignity, her serene ardor. I had maneuvered her to the expression of these equalities by my hollow commitment to Rumai and to the others before Rumai who had engaged me only physically. Under my wife's attentions, though, I print sullenly demanding more than Rumai or any woman in her position had the power to give. My knees, I wanted her to know, had at least as much urgency as our worlds. At the end of one of these fatiguing encounters, Rumai seemed both to concede the legitimacy of my demands and to decry their intemperance. She took a warm pendant from her throat and placed it on my palm like an accusation. A week later, I told Ashera, we inspected the diggings of Haft Picar. These things said, I achieved a first in the Wardress's house. I fell asleep under the hand of the Shera. My dreams were dreams, not nightmares, and lucid ones shot through with light and peaceful funnelings of sand. The images flooding me were hollowed 
arms and legs inside a series of shifting yellow, yellow-orange, and subtly red discs. The pour of running sand behind these images conferred upon them the blessing of mortality, and that, I felt, was good. I awoke in a blast of icy air and found myself alone. The door to the sheriff's apartment stood open on a shaft of the stairwell, and faint, angry voices came across emptiness between. Groggy, I lay on my stove bed watching the door, a square of shadow feeding its chill into the room. Dorian, a husky voice called. Dorian, Wardress Skiffa's voice. Diluted by distance and fear, a door opened, and her voice hailed me again, more loudly than the door slammed. And every noise in the house took on a smothered quality. I got up, dragging my bedding, and reached the narrow porch on the stairwell. Thin starlight filtered through the louvered windows in the ceiling, but looking from stairway to stairway. I had no idea behind which door the wedges had hidden, because there were no connecting stairs among the staggered landings. My only option was to go down. I took the steps two at a time, nearly plunging. At the bottom, I found my shower with both hands clenched about outer stair rail, trembling. Indeed, he seemed about to shake himself apart. I put my hands on his shoulders. And the tremors wrecking his systems threatened to wreck mine too. Who would fly apart first? Go upstairs, I told Ashera. Get the hell up there! The wordress called again. Her summons hurt to a pinpoint. The Ashera could not, or would not, obey me. I coaxed him, cursed him, goaded him. Nothing availed. The wardress calling me had inadvertently caught the sheriff out as my proxy, and he declined to yield to me the role that he'd usurped. The beautifully fared plains of his skull turned to me, bringing with them the st- the stainless steel rings of his eyes. These parts of his body did not tremble, but they could not countermand the argues shaking him. As inhuman and as immovable as they were, his features still managed to convey stark entreaty. I knelt, felt about his legs, and removed the penlight and the disc from the two pocket-like incisions holding them. Then I stood and used them. Find Wardress Hefa for me, Shara. I pointed at the high windows. And the sheriff floated up from the steps through the mid-interior of the house, in the starlight, rocking a little. He passed through a knot of curving stairs into a space where he suddenly grew brightly visible. Which floor? I jabbed the penlight at several different landings around the well. Show me the one. My words echoed. The sheriff, legs dangling. Inscribed a half circle, then pointed at a half-hidden doorway. I stalked across the well, found a likely seeming stairway, and climbed it with no notion of what to do. 
Gorgeous Kefa didn't call out, but the same faint, slurred voices muttered again. The Orhas, a pair of muted female gaffers, convinced me of this, and I hesitated on landing. Okay, I told the sheriff, turning him with a wrist movement. Go home. He dropped through the torus of a lower set of stairs, found our chamber's porch, and settled upon it like a clumsy puppet. I pocketed the penlight in my gun and knocked on Oha's door. Enter, Gleva Oha said. By all means, Sheriloka, enter. Every surface of the room was burnished as if with beeswax. The timbers shone. Whereas in the other chambers at sea, nearly all the joists and rafters were rough-hewn. Here they were smooth and splinter-free. The scent of sandalwood pervaded the air, and opposite the door, a carven screen blocked my view of the stove bed. A tall wooden lamp illuminated the furnishings, and the figures arrayed about its border of light, like iconic statues. Welcome," Clairach said. "Your invitation was from the Wurgis, however, not us. You wore only silken pantaloons drawn together at the waist with a cord. His right forearm pressed down on Wurgis Kifa's throat, restraining her movement without yet cutting off her wind. His frowsy cloak, in a gown much like mine, sat cross-legged on a cushion. Toying with the waxed stiletto, her eyes gleamed white as did her brother's. The doings of too much placino, too much wolfram smallmouth, and the Oha's own meanness. Cleva was drugged and drunk, malicious to a turn. Cleva didn't appear that far gone, but all he had to do to strangle the virgins was lift his forearm into her trachea. I felt out of my element, guiltless in a sluice of stinging salt water. Wurgis Kifa. She's all right, Cleva told me. Perfectly all right. She gazed from her right eye alone and barked a deranged-sounding laugh. Let the Wurgis go, I told Cleva. Amazingly. He looked intimidated. Mister Loka's unknown prose, he reminded Cleva. That letter opener you're cleaning your nails with—it will mean nothing to him. Then let her go, Clerache. Now. Clerache released the wardress, who, massaging her throat, hurried to the stove bed. She halted beside the screen and beckoned me over. Mister Lorca, please, will you see to him first? I beg you. I'm going back to Wolfram Summit, Clerach said, slipping on his night jacket. Then he gathered his clothes and left. Clerach stayed on her cushion. Her head tilted back as if sipping poison from a chalice. Glancing at her, I went to the wardress, stepped around the wooden partition, 
and saw her Shara. The chopman lying there was slender, almost slight, with a ridge of flesh, where a human being has a mouth. His eyes were an organic sort of crystal, uncanny and depthful stones. One of these brandy-colored stones, Cleva's letter opener had dislodged from its socket. Although the orhas had failed to pry it loose, blood streaked the chopman's face. These streaks ran down into the bedding under his narrow head, giving him the look of an aboriginal in war paint. Lacking external genitalia, his body was spread eagled atop the quilt so that the burns on his legs and lower abdomen caught for notice as plungently as did his face. Sweet light, sweet light, the wardress chanted. Now in my arms, clenching me tightly above her beloved butchered Shara. He's not dead, Cleva insisted. The rules, the rules say not to kill them, and brother and I obey the rules. What can I do, Borges Cleva? I whispered, holding her. Slammed against me, she repeated her consoling chant. Fearful that this being with gemstone eyes would die, was still delayed. Wardress Kifa animating a warmth I had never believed available to me. She, I saw, was also a compassionate Shara, as much a Shara as the bleeding chopman on a stove bed or the creature, whose electro-studded body and gleaming death's head had mocked the efficient. Mechanical deadness in me, a deadness that, in turning away from Rumaya, had turned into a god. In the face of this realization, my disgust with Orhas changed into something new—a mode of perception, a means of adapting. I had an answer, one not easy but still quite a simpler one. I too qualified as a compassionate sharer. Monster machine emperors, the designation no longer mattered. Wherever I might go, I would live forevermore a ward of this woman's house. My fate inescapable and sure. The wardress broke free and knelt beside the chopman. She tore a piece of cloth from her tunic, wiping blood from the sheriff's face. She said, "Downstairs, I heard him calling, Mister Loka." Encephalogue, brainwards. I came as quickly as I could. Clearach tried to stop me. All I could do was shout for you. Then not even that. Her hands touched the sheriff's burns, hovered above the wounded eye, moved about with a mysterious somatic knowledge. We couldn't get it all the way out. Cleva Oha said, laughing. It wouldn't come. Clearach tried and tried. I found the cloned female's pea jacket, leggings, and tunic. Then I took her by the arm and led her downstairs. As I did so, she reviled me tenderly. You, she predicted, you will never get. She was right. 
Years passed before I turned to the house of compassionate sharers, and upon learning of their sadistic abuse of a ward of the house, the authorities in Manitoport denied the Orhas any future access. A sharer, after all, was an expensive commodity. But I did return. After going back to Mirost and living with Mai the remaining forty-two years of her life, I applied to the house as a novitiate. I reside here now. In fact, as well as in a metaphor, I have become a sharer. My brain cells die, and I can do nothing to stop the depredations of time. But my body mimics that of a young man. And I move inside it with ease. Visitors seek comfort from me, as once, against my will, I sought comfort here, and I try to give it, even to those who have only a muddled understanding of what a sharer does. My battles are not really with these unhappy people, but with the advanced columns of my senility, a fact I do not care to admit. And the shock troops of memory, which still functions remarkably well for one so old. Wojciech Kifa died seventeen years ago. Diderot's twenty-two and Rumai two. Fast do I keep score nowadays. Death has also carried off the jam-eyed tropeman and the sharer who drew the real Dorian Lorca out of the prosthetic. Rained that he had mistaken for himself. I intend to stay here longer. I have recently taken a chamber into which the light sifts with a painful white brilliance, reminiscent of the sands of Mirost or the snows of Wolfram Summit. This is all to the good. Either way, you see, I die at home.